0: Welcome to our final portion of today's conference, and we're going to go through some of the questions that you've written down, I've looked at them, Uh, they were good. Some of them weren't good, and I'm just being honest. And if your question wasn't asked in this panel discussion, it's because it wasn't, no, don't record that part in the recording, we could cut that out. I'm just kidding, we'll try to get through as many questions as we can. Uh, But before we start, uh, let's let's just open up in prayer one more time. Lord, we want to thank you for this amazing day that we've had to listen to three people that you have raised, that you have specifically called, and that you have ordained and anointed with your Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that we were able to listen to your amazing works that you have done through them, And even in their successes, but especially through their failures, we see that, Lord, that you are still sovereign, and that your will is being done, and the amazing grace that we have is that you call us to work with you still. And so, Lord, as we open up this panel discussion, please be with us, but especially our guests now. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to go through these questions one by one. Some of it is directly uh, addressed to one of you. Uh, some of it is to all. So I'm going to start with the all one. Um, and this question reads this way. What was a definitive moment in which you knew God was calling you to your specific field? What was a definitive moment in which you knew God was calling you to your specific field? I don't know who would like to start, but that's all you.
1: Um, yep, I'll, I'll go super quick. Um, I first responded to the gospel message when I was 10 years old, but through my teenage years, my parents are Christians uh, and they, they raised me to, to kind of understand what the, the Bible teaches and took me to church and all those kinds of things. But through my teenage years, I, um... Uh, I decided to kind of do my own thing. I never stopped believing in God. I never stopped, you know, loving God w- in my own way. Um, but but I kept seeing nice shiny objects in the sand that were more, more attractive to me. So I was like, oh, I'll go and explore that for a bit. And I did a lot of kind of uh, just searching about and finding other things to occupy my time. And uh, after a while, uh, you know, y- y- you're trying to figure out who you are as a teenager. And um, I-, I, never really, I never really figured that out. I was happy enough. But I never really figured out who I was. When I was 17 friend of mine came to me and we were in um what we call so you guys still are in high school at 17 right but in 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 england or at least it was back in the day they've changed it now you, you've left school at 16 and you went to what we call college and you're in college from 16 to 18 we call it college too you call it college but later in <laughs> later in life right so we see our college is 16 to 18 and then eight and then post 18 is university right so um we, we, so I'm at college and my college is connected to my high school my previous high school and this girl comes to me and she says hey you want to help me run a Christian union a Christian weekday club for some of the kids in the lower part of the high school some of the kind of 12, 13 year olds and I was like no <laughs> and, and she was like eh, it'll be fun we'll do it on a Wednesday and you, you know this." and I was like I, I don't know she's like we're going to have free donuts every week and I was like Okay. Yeah. If there's donuts, I can get on board with that. So I went to help her out at this club, and we did that once a week. And it was interesting because as I started doing that and hanging out with these kids who had all these questions week in, week out, and just to start mentoring them a little bit, it started to make me, it forced me to start thinking about my faith and taking it more seriously and realizing this wasn't a peripheral thing that I could just do on a Sunday, like what's been talked about already today. It couldn't just be my Sunday existence and do what I want sin through the week and then get my top up on a Sunday and have my little social club and I said no I needed to take it seriously and as we did bible studies with them I started to think more and more and more seriously about it all and um, and then I was going to go to university which I guess is what you guys call college and by this point I was really taking my faith really seriously for the first time probably in my whole life and at that moment um, I saw an organization called Youth for Christ. You have it here in the States. Billy Graham founded it in the, in the UK, a uh, missional organization. They, they were um, running year-out year programs where you could go and work with them for a year, get trained in evangelism and, and outreach and witness. And I'd just taken up DJing at this point, And they basically said to me, hey, if you're interested, you can come and work with us for a year and you can use your DJing and you can travel all around the UK and we'll put concerts on with you and we'll train you to be an evangelist. And you can do that for a year, and then you can go to university after that. You can defer for a year, and then you go to university after that. So I was like, I think this is the thing. And I just felt the Lord really put this on my heart. My parents are like super cool, super cool. So they were like, yeah, man, if that's what you want to do, you go for it. Um, and so I went and did that. It changed my life changed my life that year a year for christ changed my complete destiny and i i, I then ended up going to college eventually but i only stayed for a year and then i bailed out because i was like this is dull i want to go preach the gospel uh not not in the college environment i want to go and do it do, do what i was doing before and so that was pivotal time for me uh and it was really just a series of events that take the faith seriously have the opportunity step into the opportunity and that
2: that's how it happened yeah my story is not that fascinating um <laughs> I will will say this, um, and this is sort of zagging when everyone's zigging. Like, I actually don't think that that question, I know it feels important to you. Um, I don't think it's that important to know sort of when was the moment that you knew because I'm now doing something that is not what I thought I would be doing. And I still feel like I'm following God. And so don't get locked into like, that's the moment that God said, you know, just take, take an open door, walk through it and follow God and just honor God with whatever you're doing, whether, wherever you are, you're at, you're, th- that's more important. How you, how you do what you do, regardless of what you're doing.
3: Ditto. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. I think, uh, you know, I, I fought the call, uh, to clergy, like kicking and screaming on some level, um but I knew that I, I love the Lord and I wanted to serve him with my whole heart. And uh, I think that became clear to me. And I knew, I knew that I had a call to full-time ministry before I was in full-time ministry. So, and like, even though like I'm at church and then I work full-time, like we're all in full-time ministry. Like who, you know, takes their tie and then their crown off at the end of the day? Like nobody, like we all are in full-time ministry. Like that's our call. And so like when it happened, how it happened, you know, it happened, right? And um, our call is, like, we're full-time. We're always on.
0: Thank you. I I think that question was also just so that maybe some of them wanted to get to know you a little bit more. And I think that's why people ask, um, just because they like you. They want to know a little bit more about you. I wouldn't blame them.
1: And, but you just dropped theology on it. That's the right <laughs> idea. But it, and it I feel
2: like we know you is, better because kind of that. They were yeah, so. just being kind to me yeah. and Greg, but they're like, how did you become a DJ? <laughs>
0: no. Come on. All right. I think this next question <laughs> is a little bit loaded, but I'm just going to read it for what it is. And then you can, uh, you know, do a little surgery there. How can I balance the church work and evangelism? That's the question. How can I balance the church work and evangelism? And this is
3: directed to all of you. That is a loaded question. (laughs) Um, I'm sure that uh, my fellow panel will expound on it much more profoundly. Um, You know, I think it's it's hard when you begin to equate what your mandate is with the work that you're doing um, because they're uh, while they're they're related they're 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 separate right like I think your mandate is not something that you try to parcel out as a piece of your salvation it is it is it is like who you are you we are evangelists like that is a part and on some level we are living that out in some way shape or form every single day and so that's really not something that like we we try to like segment, like carve out time to evangelize. And I think when we try to compartmentalize that aspect of of our faith and our life, then it will feel like work, right? And, um, you know, it's, it's really not work. It's allowing God to like uh, shine through us. And um, I don't wanna be like too broad brush here, but I do think that, you know, we don't want to necessarily, I don't want anybody to walk away with this sense that, like, there's this duty of evangelism that's, like, part and parcel with, like, duty of being a deacon and duty of, like, being an usher. Um, you know, that's very different. Like, what you might do, like your skills and however you apply them through the service of the church is not really what the the mandate of evangelism in terms of God's, how he commissioned us all to go out. And, you know, we will all have different opportunities to evangelize in different areas and, and use our talents and abilities. But, you know, I think it's, we have to be careful not to make like that, like a, like a task, um, a part of like any other kind of church task.
1: Yeah. Um, again, I think I would probably just want to clarify what what you mean by doing evangelism and church work specifically, which I think is what you, what you were starting to to explore there. I mean, if you if you mean holding a formal role within the church community, then you, I would hope that you hold that role because you feel that God's called you and commissioned you and put you in that place to be an elder or a deacon or have a, a formalized functional role within the church. In which case. Do the duties that you've been charged with to the best of your ability, to the amount of time that it takes to get that job done. But there shouldn't really ever be a separating out of the evangelistic task. I mean, that's just that's just that's just who we are. So again, it comes back to the identity thing that we were hearing about earlier. We we reveal Christ in every action, in every thought and deed and word that we speak. And um, the only question that I would ask of people who have a very um, church focused life in terms of their their role and responsibility keeps them here within the community quite a lot is, are you making and maintaining friends with not yet believers? That's a simple question that I would ask any believer do you make and maintain friendships and relationships meaningful relationships with not yet believers if you don't ask yourself why that is is it just circumstance you're never around any okay well find a new club to go and join and, and join, join a new chess club and start you know or you know something fun um, to, uh, to to meet new people where you can actually make and maintain non-christian friendships that will potentially yield gospel free and i tell you what as well right I told you I think I told you guys before that my best friend is not Christian did I tell you that no, I didn't tell you that. I think I maybe had a conversation with someone else. My best friend is not a Christian. Uh, I've known him for 12 years. We have great conversations about faith and, and life. God has taught me an awful lot through, through him. He doesn't know God, but he's made in the image of God, so he has the capacity to reveal all sorts of interesting things about God to me without even realizing that he does that. He's also one of the kindest people I know, one of the most generous, thoughtful people that I know, and I learned so much from him about godly kindness, even though he does not... The greatest tragedy of his acts of kindness and his acts of love is not that he is less kind than me. In fact, he's more kind than me in so many ways. puts me to shame sometimes. The greatest tragedy of his kindness and love is that he can never turn it back to worship, which is what he was created for. So when he's kind and when he's loving, he can never turn it back to thanksgiving and praise of the Father who allows him to be that way. right? But that doesn't mean that I can't learn from him and grow from him. So it's actually a two-way street when we befriend non-Christians, but the ultimate hope is that we would help them come to life.
0: Thank you. I'm going to try to put these two questions into one for all of you. And um, I'll just read this first part. It says, we've all encountered those hell and hellfire and brimstone evangelists on the street. They're usually a bit older. We avoid them, just like everyone around us. But they represent evangelism in our and most people's minds. The question is, how has evangelism changed in the past 20 years? What's the best way to approach millennials? Or what's the best way, do you think? I think the question really is, um, how has evangelism changed so that you can, how do you see evangelism now in 2017 as opposed to maybe 40 years ago or 30 years ago that you still see some remnants of in what this person labels the street?
2: Yeah, I would just like to say, I, I, I would, I would, I would venture to say that evangelism hasn't like sort of changed to this new thing where it's like this new evangelism. Um, I think it's it's really a hearkening back to sort of the the basic tenets of evangelism in Scripture, right? I mean, when you look at um, God incarnating His Son, right? Um, God didn't just speak from the heavens and say, you know, humans, you need to believe in. In this person, Jesus Christ, he, he came and he incarnated himself. And so like the incarnational ministry that, that Greg is talking about his church, you know, getting his choir to sing on, you know, 125th Street. Like that's incarnational. They're getting into the community. And so I don't think there's anything, quote unquote, new about it. Um, I think that that sort of prototypical vision of what we have as evangelists, uh, I think it's easy to mock them. But, uh, but be careful Because those are the people who have the courage and bravery to stand and say something, oftentimes in the face of utter, you know, rejection and spite. Um, And and ultimately, they're doing it because they believe in the gospel and they're doing it courageously. And so I don't want to just come off and mock them and and put them down and say, oh, you know, like those people are, you know. No, like, and, and I will say there are people that are in heaven or will be in heaven because of them. And so let's not... Let's not, you know, downplay that. I think that the the sort of tragedy that as we see of that system is these people have been given a mandate without sort of the meaning behind it, right? I want to show you the love of Christ. <laughs> right, right? It's, I, I want That's the mandate. I want to show people the love of Christ, but I've lost the message behind it, the method behind it. And so there are some people that have that have the, 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 the method, but they, they've lost the mandate. And so let that be sort of a corrective for maybe some of us to say, maybe I do need to speak up a little bit more. Maybe I do need to be a little bit bolder in my words um, and not go completely the opposite, but maybe there's something that I can learn from sort of that spectrum.
1: Yeah, that is good. Um, I, I, I think this spectrum, great segue coming up here. Um, I think there is a spectrum. And I think on two ends of the spectrum, you've got on one end, you've got what, what we would probably consider to be the fundamentalist approach to to preaching the gospel, to proclaiming the gospel, which would be stand on the street corner, just shout that as many people passing by might hear, and that some of that, you scatter the seed, right, as far as you can, and hope that some of that seed lands good, and it can be can be brought to life. On the other end of the spectrum is what I would call a pragmatic approach to evangelism, um, where the end justifies means and therefore you get very sketchy with your means because you'll think I'll and not only with your means you'll get very sketchy with your message as well you'll make the message as palatable as you can make it in the hope that more people will receive it but of course you've got as Paul warns us and implores us be very careful that you don't turn your gospel into no gospel at all by not preaching the true gospel only the true gospel is the gospel. as soon as you just start changing it or taking or adding away from it, you've got no gospel at all. And the preaching of a deficient gospel produces deficient Christians. And let me tell you, we don't need any more deficient Christians. There are plenty of those already. I'm one of them at times, yeah? And we need Christians who are born right, who are born right because they received the gospel right. So the, me- the message is essential, um, but mechanism is also important, as, as was just said. And standing on the corner absolutely blasting it out is probably not the wisest way to go about doing it if you want to genuinely make connection with the listeners. and I think I, I'm so heartened to hear you say what you say because I fully agree. We're very good at Christians of far, of firing arrows into each other's backs and criticizing what each other do and saying, oh, well, that's not very good. I wouldn't do it like that. And that's not very good. There's a difference between healthy critique where we hold each other to account for the best possible practice to see the kingdom glorified and actually just have been snarky. And, and just and just pulling people down because we don't like what they do. And, and, and actually, I agree. If someone stood on a street corner, it's because hope, I, I would suggest nine times out of ten, it's because they believe in the power of the gospel. But their method is probably not that great. So I, what I'd be saying is, okay, how as a church can we journey together, which is why things like this is so important, to come up with really interesting thought-provoking challenging approaches to evangelism that will be wise that we call upon the wisdom of heaven and say lord what would you have us do okay back in the day the marketplace of ideas was literally the marketplace, right? So you would go into the market and you'd shout and there's a place in uh, London called Hyde, a big park called Hyde Park and it's a place called Hyde Park Corner. It's very famous because you can book a slot there and you can go and stand and it's a place for free speech and you can just shout whatever you want out from there for the time that you've been given allotted to shout and, and you can just go and do that and it's near the government buildings and it's this whole kind of idea about free speech and you know sharing things and like that. But the marketplace of ideas now of course is not in Hyde Park Corner or in the marketplace. It's online, which is why you see some people not doing the street preacher thing of fire and brimstone uh, on the street corner, although we still see that. You see them do it online. And I actually see way more now people posting things up that make me go, oh, on Facebook than I see people stood on the street corner is because it's the new version of it. It all comes back to the same thing. Love your fervor, love your heart, love your passion, but wisdom, <coughs> wisdom is everything. and Paul is a great example. Acts chapter 17, Paul finds himself in Athens in Greece and he finds himself um, seeing idolatry all around him and it angers him. It angers him and it moves him to a place of wanting to evangelize. So he starts preaching in the marketplace of ideas. The wise and people from the Areopagus, Mars Hill, they see this and they're like, oh, this is an interesting guy. Let's get him to come and talk to us. All of these wise, philosophical guys, the school of Epicureanism and the Stoics. And they're like, come and tell us. And it's so interesting because when you read the description of what Paul does in that section, Paul only preaches the gospel that way that time in, in all of his recorded message of how he preaches the gospel. Only that one time. And it's interesting that he even uses Stoic and Epicurean poetry as part of his explanation. of What's he doing in that example? He's tailoring his message incredibly wisely and carefully for the audience that he's in front of, because he knows that whilst the content of the message is essential, the packaging and the delivery is also really, really, really important. What's interesting is, at the end of it, not that many people get saved. So maybe actually we should look at that and go, well, not that many people got saved after all. But how do we know that if Paul had done it differently, maybe nobody would have got saved, right? The results, we get hung up on the numbers, but what I think we can be confident of the fact is, when we're prepared to think and be wise, rely on the Spirit and package our message up for an audience that we come, somebody's going to get saved in the, the, in the power of the Spirit, right? And I just think wisdom is everything. Well, not everything. The Spirit's everything, but wisdom's important. I think wisdom comes from the Spirit, so wisdom is everything. Yes, we full-circled it. Awesome. Freestyle theology. Yes.
0: Okay, um, let's take a turn now and go to one directed to Reverend Lee. Reverend Lee. Uh, Richard. I'm just reading off the thing. <laughs> so, Reverend Richard, uh, what happens to the people after you bring them out of slavery?
2: Um, thank you for asking. Um, so, our, the model at IJM, is actually really four parts of it, and I've spoken here uh, about this before. But um, we we don't want to just rescue uh, the victim, uh, but we also want to restore them. And so we work with uh, social services within the country to be able to restore them, give them release certificates, or put them in a home for uh, you know safety and for healing and wholeness. Um, and so it's not just rescue and restore, but it's also going after the bad guys. It's, it's going after restraining the criminals. And so we're not just investigators that partner with police, we're not just aftercare workers that partner with social services, we're also lawyers that partner with prosecutors to be able to throw the bad guys in jail. Um, and as we're doing that rescue and restore and restrain, uh, we end up on all levels of the government repairing the justice system. And so that's really the model, uh, is that we want to go into a place where we can repair the justice system for them to be able to do the work of rescue, restore, and restrain uh, without us. Um, we're seeing this in, in a place like India, where a couple years ago, uh, we would go to them with cases of bonded labor and say, there, there are hundreds of victims of bonded labor down the road. Uh, you know, We're bringing this to your attention. And they would literally push back the folder and say, there is no bonded labor in our state. And so they actually would take out newspaper articles, and they would say, there is no bonded labor has been eradicated. Like, and they would announce this and, and celebrate it. Um, and then case after case after case after case after case of, after case of bringing them evidence and pushing their these cases through the system, from investigation to aftercare to uh, the criminal proceedings, um, we have now sort of brought the government, built up the political will for the government to then say, uh, there is bonded labor. And in fact, there are 18 million bonded labor uh, victims in our country. And we are going to prosecute 100% of the slave owners, and we're going to free every single person, and we're going to restore them through the aftercare. And, you know, we're going to do all of these things. We've set aside money to be able to, to provide for them, uh, and we're going to all do this by 2030. And so, like, we laugh internally at the, this sort of movement because the, the government has done, like, a complete 180 on this issue, um, and that's just through us constantly pushing uh, casework through the system.
0: Praise the Lord. Yeah. Thank you. I have one for Reverend Greg Lucas. Um, would you consider joining our church and playing in our football team? No, that was for me. That's for me. Uh, this is this is what this is what it says. When working with different communities, uh, specifically low-income, less privileged how do we approach people in those communities in a loving way that doesn't make them feel less
3: than, slash inferior? I think that's a really great and thoughtful question. Um, you know, I think you can't uh, uh, over, you can't value the this idea of like building relationships enough, right, like really understand, like, we work really hard and we're really intentional about building relationships with our community. And we do that in in, in very specific ways, but I think the goal is to get to know people for people, right, and I think when you're in uh, a community that doesn't have a lot, like these are still people, you're still people with hopes, dreams, with purpose, and they have value to the Lord, and God wants to see them, living a life that's fulfilled and understanding that and approaching this, like I wouldn't approach them like they, they don't get a different gospel than if I was preaching in Rodeo drive, right? Like God sees their value and understanding and knowing that. Right. And then sometimes it's even, sometimes the poverty does create this idea that I don't deserve what God has. Like I, I experience a less than life every single day and so that's why I think a lot of times the gospel is so like powerful and moving to people who have nothing and have no hope right and um, but it's really important for us to understand like they are valuable to the lord and understanding that and being able to bring that promise and then also like the reality is is that sometimes like meeting basic needs is a great first start i don't care if people come to my church because they want a free turkey At the end of the day like whatever i like i got to meet their needs. i got to be very honest about meeting basic needs. And, I, and Jesus understood that in his ministry. And I think we, we try really hard to meet basic needs. And that always helps create an environment where we can share the gospel. But like to invite people in who are hungry, who um, are cold, and only offer them the gospel, is, it's, that's, that's not the gospel right? And so I think we have to be intentional about being willing to meet people's needs and making the connection for them.
0: Thank you. That's good. Uh, This one is for Ben. And maybe if the other panelists want to chime in after, please uh, feel free to do so. Ben, how do we approach one of the three barriers to evangelism that you mentioned, but specifically anti-authority?
1: Um... Honestly, I think the anti-authority thing is, uh, is an interesting one because we, we do now have such skepticism towards our authority figures and whether it's politics or whether... I mean, I don't know if you guys know, but we're, we're about to... In the UK, surprising turn of events have happened politically. And we voted last summer, last June, to leave the European Union and no longer be part of the the, uh, the the group of countries that are all together and with all the economic trade benefits and all of those things that come with that. Um, and that's thrown the country into a bit of turmoil. And, and it's really interesting because they did a poll immediately after it happened and it turns out that actually if the country had known that we were going to vote to leave, the vote would have gone differently. Um, it's one of those ironies where actually a lot of people were like, oh, we just honestly didn't think that the vote was going to go that way so we didn't bother to vote and go out it's like like come on this is crazy so we've ended up we're coming out of the eu and it's it's a bit of a nightmare um and because of that our prime minister she just announced um two weeks ago that they're now going to have uh, we're going to have an election for the for the three years early three years early she's only been in for one year but because it's thrown the country into such political turmoil, she's called for a snap general election. So we're about to go through the process that you guys have just been been through to elect a new president. We're going to go through that to elect a new prime minister. What's interesting is it's come out in the media that um, uh, the, the party that are currently in power, there are more than 20 of those MPs in that party, uh, ministers in that party, who are currently undergoing formal uh, fraud investigations to do with their expense claims. And, th- and You know, you look at it and you kind of go, yeah, this is why people don't trust you. This is why everybody's so sketchy about authority. And we don't like the idea of being told what to do and we're rebellious. And, you know, even if our leaders were trustworthy, we'd still kick off because we want to be able to do our own thing. We want to have control over our own, you know, uh, lives and all that kind of stuff. So when we then bring the gospel along and we say, hey, you know, the gospel is actually the story of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus announces the gospel, what he announces is that the kingdom is at hand, that actually he is the king, we're not the king. The problem of sin is actually high treason against the king of the universe. We've rebelled, we've rejected against God, who is life, all of these things. As we start explaining the gospel for what it is, people can get a bit fractious about that. And one of the reasons why people get offended is because do you want to answer that? Is that, should we, should we is, it, is it important? Paul's texting, to it, wrap it up. Is it the Lord? Yeah. Um, we, um, the, one of the reasons why we, uh, people get so offended is because they don't like being told that, that they're not their own, that they can't you know, live their life as they choose and as they see fit. Honestly, though, this is the irony of it. I actually believe that the answer to anti-authoritarianism is to simply present something that people have never had, which is the perfect king. The reason why we rally so hard against leaders who are imperfect is because we have a sense that they should be perfect. The only reason why we have a sense that they should be perfect or good or righteous is because there is a God who created the world who is the perfect ruler, who is the perfect king. We have no framework, we have no reason to believe that our leaders should do a good job unless there is a standard by which we can judge that against. When we actually hold Christ up as the absolute gold perfection standard of here is a perfect God that will never let you down. Yes, he is the king of the universe, but he's not like any king that you've ever known. What king would lay their life down for you so that you could live? What king would serve you rather than coming to be served when we present christ as a different kind of king a different kind of leader a different kind of authority to anything that anybody's ever known then we start to present the gospel for what it really is actually stepping out of ridiculous shackles of trying to be the ruler and the lord and the king of your own life which will never satisfy and when you can highlight the deficiency of people's worldview how are you getting on in your life being the king of your own life how's that going for you how's that going for you is that going well because I think actually when you dig down into it for most people, they'll be like, no, it's not going well. I'll tell you how things go well. They go well when you actually turn and you realize that you were created to, to, to find your wholeness and your hope in the king of the universe. So the anti-authority question for me is found, the answer to it is found in presenting Christ as a different kind of king to, to what people could possibly imagine.
2: Yeah, I'll take a, a stab at, at that. I, I think um, as you sort of pull back from this anti-authoritarian uh, standpoint, Um, I think you have to recognize, like, what, even just, like, politics, right? What what did politics look like? A hundred years ago, it was a guy standing on the back of a train, right? And he would stand in front of, like, three reporters. And that's how information got out. And so you sitting in your home, like, the only way that you got information, truth, was what was printed about a guy that you don't even know what they look like. Right, I mean, so that's what the way information has gone, has has, has uh, sort of progressed, and so now we are in not just in a twenty, not in just like a news cycle, but like a CNN cable news twenty-four hour cycle. But even that, forget about twenty-four hours, right? We're in a twenty-four second Twitter, uh, Twitterverse, right, where every single piece of news is now being you know scooped by Twitter, and so like the ESPN just laid off you know hundreds of employees, and it's because you know, the, the, the need for reporters, in-depth sort of investigative reporters is because, you know, the athletes are tweeting their own news. They're not calling up the reporters. And so anyway, all of that is the access, immediate access to information has allowed us to be skeptical about everything. And so it's not just Nixon, you know, recording himself and being revealed as, like, a liar. Now it's like, oh no, we actually have um, you know, visual proof, like photographs of, like, Sound clips of of you know presidents who who lie and and candidates and politicians and everything like that. So all that is to say, the cats are out of the bag, right? the The days of like trusting authority, the way that it was in the fifties and the twenties and the what those days are gone. Vietnam, all of that, like it's all gone, right? That's not going to happen again. And so the issue is not about authority. The issue is about trust. Because every authority that we've seen, whether it be a coach, um, you know, whether, you know, a, a teacher, a politician, a, pa, a priest, we, we've, we've seen enough stories where we do not trust the authority anymore. And so the issue is not necessarily, you don't need to reestablish authority in, these, in the people that have these issues. You need to reestablish trust. And how do you reestablish trust? You're, you're authentic you're honest, you're genuine, and you're consistent. Um, and so I think the way to read through this anti-authoritarian uh, perspective is actually it's a, it's, a, it's a vacuum of trust, not a vacuum of authority.
1: Yeah. I, I wholly agree, although I would just point out that even if the trust was there, people still want to be the lord of their own life, yes. and that is an authority issue. That's the, that's fundamentally sin. That's, that's the, that's the, that is the de facto problem that we all have as human beings. We think we're a better God than God is. And that is an authority issue. And so in partnership with the building of trust, it's re-establi- reestablishing God as king and reminding people that, well, not reminding people, but reminding ourselves actually, the gospel is not good advice. We're not taking good advice to people. We are taking the glorious good news of the coming kingdom of God. You are not king he is, how we frame that, how we dialogue it, how we explore it, of course actually ironically, well not ironically, importantly is based around having trusting relationships with people where they, they will listen to what we say and they will be intrigued and inspired because there is a trust uh, and I like what you say, the trust of vacuum um, is, 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 yeah, it's, it's trust has been severely, severely, and many people would say irre- irreparably broken but um, anything's possible with God, right?
3: Um I think, I'm not sure, I haven't been around that long, but I'm not sure if I've ever ever been in an environment where people seem as outraged and angry as they are now. Um, And I would be lying if I said that as a man raising two young boys of color, that I also didn't experience anger and frustration and worry about what this world will be for them as I raise them in this world where they may not necessarily be valued or, you know, even the conversation has changed from, you know, in the 90s we used to talk to young people of color in in, in the urban landscape about, like, how to know your rights when you get confronted by police and the narrative has changed to how to survive an encounter with police. And so like when you put that into context of people feeling let down by like uh, an appointed Saul type king, you know, people don't have the willingness to know that there is someone who is, has all authority even for the things that we're struggling with in this day. And I think like both um, uh, Pastor and Ben really kind of like spoke to this um, establishing trust. It's not like trust in us, right? It's it's not our trust, but it's it's really re representing King Jesus in a way that he has not. He is not being presented in this in this moment, and how who he is is everything, has everything to do with um, whether you you're frustrated about. Uh, Black Lives Matter, or whatever the issue is, representing King Jesus to this world is the only important thing. And if it's the, and as long as the conversation is that Jesus is kind of important to the conversation, then it's irrelevant. Because he he can either be the answer or nothing. He just can't be like sort of the answer. Like that's just not the, that is not an option. He is either king, he reigns, he's sovereign, or he's not. He can't be part of the solution, right? And so when we represent him, we need to be able to represent him as all sovereign, all knowing, and having all authority to rule over everything that we're experiencing. And I know that for me, raising two uh, uh, boys of color, like they need to be able to understand that and understand where their power and where their authority really comes from. And being able to access that like access that in a real way, right? Having what I call what I talk, what I tell my what I tell the, the the members of my church, having real-time faith, right? Like faith in real time, faith as you're living, walking, and experiencing life and being and that only comes from having that relationship with God and understanding that He has all authority.
0: What about I just want to follow up. What about those that have gone so and I'm sure we've met some of them and people here have met people like that or on that path that have gone down the rabbit hole. They're just so far down. People have come to me and said, have you seen this YouTube video? And then I go, oh, no. Because how late was it, first of all, and how long have you been watching YouTube, and how many clicks did it get you to watch this specific video? And the conversation, you're speaking here, but they're over here. Do you have any methods that you have used in the past or maybe examples to bring back I guess that conversation, uh, I'll give you one specific example of a person that I personally know that now has come to a point where they don't trust anybody or anything, period. I don't trust anybody or anything because of all this political mess. This world is just controlled by the, I don't know, just insert a group here. And so there's just no hope for the world. I don't think Jesus can do anything have you ever uh, experienced something like that? And how, how did you respond to someone that would approach you in this way?
1: Yeah, uh, back to basics. I think that's, the, uh, for me, that would be my general imploration, full stop, uh, for the church with evangelism and with the gospel. We've got to get back to basics. And I think so much of... So many of the challenges and the problems that we face in our church communities, within our evangelism, within our uh, world, definitely within our world, um, people who have these, these problems of trust issue and going down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory uh, and, and messing their mind up with not trusting anybody and getting a little bit even spiritually paranoid, you know, it is actually saying, OK, let's just strip this all the way back. Let's just go all the way back and take it back to the most fundamental basic truth in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Let's start with that and let's move from there. And if the person doesn't believe that, then we have a a conversation around the plausibility of whether or not God exists in the first place and could have brought and where the universe came from and all those things, if we're gonna have a rational dialogue around those things. But assuming this person is a person of faith, they're just struggling with, like like you said, your friend is, and say, well, let's scale it right back. In the beginning, God created. God is king. God has always been king. God will always be king. You, You know what it means for God to have a kingdom? doesn't mean that God's kingdom is not earth. God, God, God's kingdom is, a, is, a, is, is both a concept and a reality. God's kingdom is simply the very idea that he rules and reigns. It's not a territory. It's not a place. It is the reality that God perfectly rules and reigns. That's the kingdom of God. Now, when I'm talking to a person about... Uh, authority and, and, and uh, you know, conspiracy theories and the Illuminati and who rules the world and all these kinds of things. If they're a believer, I'm simply going to say, do you seriously think that any effort of man, any power, any power of man could usurp the king from his throne, eternally speaking? We, we, we're transient. We're, we're, we're material creatures. We will degrade and fade and die. But God, he's eternal. He will last forever. And actually, he allows us. Transient beings, us material beings, to uh, move beyond the limitations of our material nature and actually transcend and and become what we truly are, actually, which is not body but spirit. That's actually what we really are as human beings. We're not body, we're spirit. And He's going to allow us to take that spirit into eternity where His kingdom will be fully realized. And I'd be wanting to just draw some of these basic concepts with these people and just reestablish God for who He is, the King of the universe. And make sure that this person understood that when we're talking about authority and reign and rule in the, concept in, in the concepts and the ideas of powers on this earth like the Illuminati and people controlling things, and big business and corporation, all that kind of stuff, it would simply be coming back to basics. Do you or do you not believe that God is the king? If you believe that God is the king, we can do away with all of this other nonsense. If you don't believe that God is the king, I need to help you understand that he is. We've got to get back to basics.
2: Yeah, I think my approach would be to just go on a crazy shake diet. (laughs) Like, I I, I mean, I think we all know people like, you know, that will argue about everything. And I I think it's, you can lose a person by trying to win an argument. And so I think it's important, you know it may not be this week, right? It may be that person, you know, when, they're, when they get surgery, you're the guy who shows up in the hotel room, in the, in the, hotel, in the hospital room, right? I mean, you may be the guy who, when, when they're sick, you text them to see if they're doing okay. And, like, that is different. And, and anybody else that, you know, they interact with, and they're picking fights on Facebook with everybody, but you're the one guy who shows up and is nice to them consistently. So it's not showing up once, right? It's like just show up every day. Just show up. And it, again, it may take years for that person to come to a point where God opens a door and, and they look in that bucket of Christianity and they see all these pebbles with your initials on it and they go, you know what? Let me call this person up. You never know.
3: think um, this is a fallen world right and I, I, I don't think that anything that happens here should be a surprise to us um, because it's not a surprise to our Lord and I think that the world apart from Christ is operating in a manner that is in alignment with the, the world as it functions apart from Christ. like, And I, I think on some on some level, we, we should understand that, that. That is like one of the reasons for the mandate to go out into this fallen world uh, and preach the gospel. Um, because if the world wasn't that bad and, and not in need of saving, it'd be pretty useless for us to have to have a mandate to go out and spread the gospel to people who are not really in need of a savior. Um, this, this is a fallen world, and we are in need of a savior. And that, that is so kind of like to, to Ben's uh, point of going back to basics. I think that on, on, on a very uh, fundamental level, like understanding that, that that is like the nature of this world.
0: Actually, I have an example from when I was younger. Uh, moving on. Um, we were setting up Christmas lights in our church in Flushing. And as we were setting up Christian, Christmas lights, we did it every year. It was an annual thing. Everybody was excited. Uh, these two men came. And one man started just yelling, like basically railing against what we were doing, saying this is wrong. Jesus, did Jesus, wasn't, Jesus isn't king. You guys are incorrect. Uh, and then what happened was our youth pastor came out, and he yelled back at him. And he said, you believe what you want to believe. And we'll believe what we b- want to believe. And I remember hearing that even as a kid and thinking to myself, wow, there's something fundamentally wrong here. Um, and that goes to kind of what a lot of people have kind of bought into. You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. What's wrong with that? So how would you respond to someone that came up to you and said, as far as evangelism is concerned, you know what? I want to be comfortable and I don't have the, the desire. How would you respond to that person per se if that was their response to you after listening to all of this? I was like, you know what? I, I don't think it's, it, it's a big deal that I want to be comfortable because my faith is between me and God, right? Me and God. I'm sure you've heard that before. How would how, how you respond or how would you respond to that?
1: Okay, cool. Um, I, I, would, uh, I would say it is understandable that you want to be comfortable, but you need to shake that off. You need to shake it off. Because when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The gospel demands that you lay your life down. I'll give you an example of what I mean by this, um, which I think is one of the most stark examples. And without getting into the thorny issue of LGBT and the gay community and our responses uh, Christians. I think this just sets what I'm saying up quite well. There is uh, a guy um, in the UK um, who is a well-known, uh, he's called Sam Albury, and he's a well-known um, Church of England vicar. And he is, uh, he self-identifies as being gay. Um, but because he's uh, a believer in God and he holds to a traditional view of Scripture, he believes that it's not okay for him to enter into a same-sex relationship or indulge in sexual activity with someone of his same gender. So he has uh, made the commitment to live a celibate life, Okay, even though he identifies as being gay. Although he wouldn't phrase it like that because he says actually his identity is not that he's gay. His identity is that he's a, he's a child of God. He just has, believes he has the orientation of, uh, of same-sex attraction. What's fascinating is that he says with this celibacy thing, People often come to him and they say, wow, Sam, it is amazing that although you identify as same-sex attracted, you are going to never have a sexual relationship with someone that you're attracted to because you believe that that is more. How, how do you do it? You, you're giving up. You're giving up so much. And he said, that question drives me up the wall. He said, because that simply reveals Christians have not understood the gospel. He says, because with love, I say back to them something very simple. He says, what on earth are you talking about? I've been asked by Jesus to give up, no more than anybody else, absolutely everything. That's the truth of the gospel. God says, you want to follow me, and you take up your cross. You die to your old life, and you're born again into the new. When Jesus tries to explain the gospel to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus doesn't understand it, because he's like, what do you mean to be born again? What do you mean, what do you mean born again? How can a man be born again if his?" and Jesus says, no, you, you don't understand. This means to have a completely new life. The life that you were living before, that's not real life, that's just existence. But you were not created for existence, you were created for life. Life is only found in Jesus. Following Jesus will cost you everything. There will be times in your life when God will bless you with great comfort and things will be good and it'll be cool. But there will also be times in your life when God will call you to do the most challenging, desperately difficult, painful things for his purposes and for his glory. If you want a comfortable life, the best bit of advice that I can give you is this. Stop following Jesus. Because you can't have a comfortable life and follow Jesus. It's the greatest adventure that any human being can know. It's the adventure of life and life in all of its fullness. Life that will last eternally and will bring not disappointment but perfection. But my friends, with no sense of condemnation from me to you in this moment, I simply say you cannot follow Jesus Christ in any meaningful sense and expect to live a life of perfect comfort it simply is not what the Bible teaches us is true about following Jesus. Will there be times of comfort? Sure. Will there be times of great? And this is the, thing, the other thing we need to separate here. You guys haven't, is it in your declaration of independence? Uh, the pursuit of happiness, right? Uh, your pursuit of happiness? Yeah, stupid pursuit. I don't want to offend you. I uh, love you great nation and all that kind of stuff. But it's a stupid pursuit. Happiness is a stupid pursuit. You know what you should pursue after? Joy. Because joy is eternal, you can piss you off to happiness. What well, happens when your cat dies? I keep talking about cat death. I'm not against cats or anything. But when your cat dies, you ain't gonna be happy. You're gonna be sad when your cat dies. Why? Because it's right to be sad. Because you feel sad about the fact that your cat. Can you be joyful even when your cat's dies? Yeah, because You could be joyful because it doesn't change the fact that you're loved by God and your eternal destiny is secure. Joy transcends happiness. Joy is what we're called to live for. When you fall into the trap of thinking that your life is supposed to be about happiness and comfort, you know what you actually reject. The fullness of life that God has for you, which won't always be, ah, sometimes it'll be like, ah, (laughs) but it will always be joyful, and it will lead to peace, which is very different to comfort. Strive for peace, not comfort, very different thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said that line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, essentially paraphrasing Jesus himself, died in a concentration camp during World War II, having been found part of a plot to assassinate Hitler that didn't didn't work out. And uh, the camp doctor who who saw uh, Bonhoeffer die reportedly said, whether we know this is actually true or not, reportedly said, I've never seen a man go to his death so at peace. So at peace. Why did Bonhoeffer have that peace, even though he's in a concentration camp and about to be hung? Why? Because he had submitted his life to Christ. Peace, not comfort.
2: Yeah, you know, my thought is, you know, if somebody here, I think this is the question, if somebody here was like, well, I hear everything you're saying, but, um, you know, I just don't have the desire um, to go and evangelize, I don't see the importance, or whatever it may be, um, I, I think my response would be, tell me more. Tell me more about that. Like, tell me why. And I think, you know, as a person, well, because I think, you know, blah blah. okay, tell me more about that. Well, because, you know, you, you don't understand the context of my career, you know, this and that. Okay, tell me more about that. Well, you just, my career is really important, and, you know, I just cannot lose this job. Okay, tell me more about that. And then it, it, it comes down to, I think, something that will end up being a very understanding, like, my reputation is greater than my obedience. Okay, that we can talk about. I'm never going to sit here and convince you to, uh, to evangelize. But if you want to have the conversation about whether your reputation is more important than your obedience, I think we can have that conversation. Or whether your success or whether your, your stability, your family's stability, maybe providing for your family, for your parents. Like, that's a noble pursuit, right? Stability, success, all of those things. Those are things that are great and wonderful things. Is it more important than obedience? Let's have that conversation. Um, and so I think it's just another example of, again, it's just if we're just kind of keep, I used to say, like, just keep poking, right? Somebody puts something in front of you, just keep po- Okay, well, tell me more. Well, what does this look like? Okay, tell me this. And then eventually you just, you poke through
3: and it's like, oh, okay, we got a different layer here. Um, so, yeah. Uh, short and sweet, I would, somebody who, like, really wants comfort over what God is calling them to do, I would say, brother, me too. Um, I, I completely understand and identify with that. And until I am relieved of this massive carcass called my body, I will have that struggle um, up until I am called home. And I understand that. And understanding that this, this flesh that we're in does not want that does not want obedience with Christ. Does not want to surrender. Does not want sacrifice. It wants to be soothed. It wants to be satisfied. It wants to be fed. It wants to be given. Uh, it wants to be comforted. And I and and that is the war that I am at with myself every day. And I know that my uh, as I feed my spirit man less, my flesh will get stronger. And I need to. Like constantly pursue the Lord and renew my mind, so that I understand that even though that flesh wants what it wants, that uh, my will is is the Lord's will for my life, and that's not easy. You know, that's 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 not that's not an easy thing, and, and it doesn't matter if you have to slap on a collar every single day. Like it doesn't make it easier. It's it's hard, right? And and I I know what I want, and I know what I don't want to do, and you know. Paul said it best. That you know what I what I want to do, I can't do, and what I don't want to do, that's the thing that I do. Um, and that's a very real struggle. And identifying with people with that struggle um, is important. And not trying to be pious in you know in talking back to somebody, but meeting somebody where they are in terms of that struggle and understanding. Listen, the flesh is just being the flesh. It's the one thing I can give the flesh. The same thing I can give the enemy is it's consistent. We'll continue to, to, to gnaw at you and chip at you and, 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 and uh, we'll take whatever you can give. Um, but, you know, you can delight yourself in the Lord and there is options. You don't have to live according to the, uh, the dictates of the flesh. But that the struggle's real.
1: The struggle is real. Can I just say what a privilege it is for me to share a panel with two such pastor-hearted people? Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. I'm sitting here and you guys are answering these questions and I'm like, this is so good to be up here with pastors. Cause I'm like, I like a question like that comes up and I'm like, suck it up, <laughs> suck it up and get out there and preach the gospel. And these guys are like, these guys are like, yeah, but you know, what we need to do is we just need to be aware of the compassion of each other. And I'm like, oh, oh, I
2: feel convicted now. Yeah. Okay. That's good. <laughs> Did you write that question? Is that...
3: Are you the fire and brimstone corner guy?
2: <laughs> Who wants to come out and
1: preach hellfire? Come on. Seriously, though, don't, don't preach hellfire. That's not, the right, not, not a good way to do it. But, but suck it up at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um, Segwaying from that,
0: what if actually you made a mistake? And in that Christian bucket, uh, like Pastor Rich was talking about, uh, we didn't actually fill it with good things. Uh, at work, you dropped a ton of F-bombs, and they know you're a Christian. And in that Christian bucket, there's about 50 F-bombs in there. <laughs> Uh, how would you go about, or do you have any any methods for damage control after uh, doing things like that, let's say in your workplace or community, how would you respond to a person asking you what they can do about damage control?
3: Well, I think it's always an opportunity to exhibit, you know, God's restorative work in us, right? Like this... This is not, like, if my relationship with Christ isn't dictated by, like, that mess up, like, all of a sudden, that's it, I've blown it, I'm out of fellowship with God. If that's not, if that's not the reality of my relationship with God, that also shouldn't be, like, how I represent my relationship with Christ. Like, you know, um, there are going to be those moments. I've certainly had those moments. We don't have to get into specifics of those moments at this point in time. Um, But I think. I know that people will want in those adverse situations, people are looking even more intently because they want to see like, what the response is. Like, okay, now I really want to see what is the bounce back? Like, what is, like, what's the response? Like, you messed up, but like, what, what do you do after that? And I think there's, there's even more of like an intentional observation of of who we are in those moments. And that's really an opportunity, again, to still be able to represent Christ. Um, One final
0: question, and that is for each and every one of our panelists, how do you personally receive, um, this person wrote downloads from God, because I think Ben Jack, you you talked about receiving downloads, How do each one of you receive, let's say, a download from God to maybe go um, say something to this person or do something like that? I think the question, the spirit of the question is, how do you really hear from the Lord and discern well the way you do discern
1: it? Um, Great. Uh, Yeah, there's no one way, actually. I I don't think I'm uh, massively prophetically gifted, um, particularly but I do believe that the Lord uh, speaks to me and prompts me at times, and inspires me with things at times. I was at a, a concert recently um, that I was performing at, and it was a whole a whole weekend of events and stuff, and so I was there all weekend, and I had a few different slots, and I'd done one, and I had another one coming up a little bit later, so I was just hanging out around the venues, about a thousand, thousand young people at this, this event in Manchester where I live, and um, I saw a it he was held in a kind of secular mainstream venue where all the staff were just, you know, hired in and, and not Christians and stuff. And I saw this guy and I just, I, I can't explain it other than just to say my heart just felt burdened when I saw him. I just felt heavy of heart. It's the simplest way that I can explain it. And so I went to um, talk to him because I've I got to talk to this guy. So I went to talk to him and I chatted with him a little bit. We had an interesting conversation about stuff and and we started talking about faith, and he was asking about uh, what was going on and what the event was all about, and I was explaining it. And he said, oh, I used to go to a church. I, my family are, uh, Catholic, and I, I, I used to go. I don't go anymore, and it didn't really appeal to me. And he said, but this is not like anything I've ever seen before of church stuff. And we had this kind of conversation, and, and that was that. And 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 he kind of went on his way, and I didn't really think much more. I just okay, well, at least I gave him some framework for what's happened here. I couldn't sleep that night. That I just couldn't sleep. My heart was just so burdened for this for this guy, and uh, so the next day I came back to the the, the event and, and I was I had another show that day, um, but I, before my show I just thought I need to go and find this guy and I hope he's working again today. So I literally went looking for him everywhere, and I couldn't find him anywhere in the in the building, and in the end. Um, I went and asked one of the other staff, and I literally looked for him for about forty-five minutes, all around the building, I couldn't find him. Went and asked one of the other staff. I said, "There's a guy who was working yesterday. Do you know where he is?" And they said to me, "Oh yeah, he's in the—he's cleaning the toilets at the moment." In this, I was like, oh, "I didn- didn't look in the toilets." Okay, so I went into the toilets, and it was kind of a stark image. Actually, I don't want to be disrespectful to his job at all. It was—it's not that his job was bad. It was just that the starkest the image. I walked in, and he was literally plumbing feces out of the toilet, it was t- totally blocked up, and as I saw this kid again, it was just like this stark reality of, you know, the prodigal son in with the pigs, you know, and I just saw, I don't want to make too much of it, but I just, the burden of my heart was there, I said, hey, I don't want to disturb you, when you finished, if you get a chance to come talk to me, I'm going to be where we were talking yesterday, he came, he talked to me, and uh, we, we prayed together. Um, and I said I asked him if I could pray for him. He told me he had anxiety. I said, Well, can I pray for you for that? I prayed for him as I prayed for him. I said, You know, I, I I just felt like the Lord was saying, You need to come home. You know, it's a it's a bit of a cliche statement, but I felt like the Lord very specifically wanted me to say that to him. It just it was rattling around in my head, you need to come home, you need to come home. So just said, I just I don't know if this is right. I just feel like the Lord would say you need to come home. And he was like, Yeah. He was like, I, I do, I need to come home. I, I think I wanna I think I wanna have what you have, I wanna follow Jesus. And I prayed for this guy, young man to be to become a follower of Jesus there and then. And I can only explain it in terms that I've already given it to you. It wasn't something in the sky, it wasn't some booming voice. Ben go and talk to the poo leader. It was it was simply I saw him from across the room and I felt in my heart you have to go and talk to him. And after I finished talking to him and went home, I all night, couldn't sleep properly, I felt the burden in my heart, the job is not finished. That's as simple as that.
2: Yeah, I'd say, um, I mean, I think my, my experience with those things pr- probably differs than yours. Um, I think, I, w- I would say two things. I would say one, um, God has downloaded a whole bunch in the Bible. Um, and if you are not obeying the things in the Bible, why would God tell you anything else to do? Um, and you hear stories of people who, like God, spoke to me, and you know, like what you just heard. And without fail, it's those people that are honoring God with their life, who are walking with Him, that God then says, "Okay, well, I got a special thing. I want you to go talk to this person." You never hear a story of a guy who's just like, "Yeah, I don't know. I just came in on the street, and they just gave me a microphone." But um, I yeah, but God told me to cut. like. You never hear that story. It's always the guy. I'm sorry, or the woman. It's always the person who is walking with God and is obeying the scriptures, right? The things that God has downloaded to you and allowing you to be able to do those things. Because if, again, if you were not obeying the scriptures, why would God ask you then to do something else if you're not already obeying the things that he's told you? Um, The other part of that is, I think we over-spiritualize it and I think we use that as, I think it's actually, I'm going to be careful here. This is the last thing I'm going to say. I think it's a way that we use that as an excuse to actually not do those things. Should, I don't know, should I go talk to that person and say something loving? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know, Pastor Eugene, I'm, I'm really wondering whether God wants me to go on this missions trip To go help the people in Cambodia. Yes. Does God want you to go share the love of Christ with people? around? Yes. Go do it. Does God want me to say something loving and caring? Does God want me to take care of this person? You see, yes, take care of that person. Like you don't need a a sort of extra sensory, you know, seventh sense, you know, calling to do it. You have the Bible that commands us to do it, so go and do it. And, and, so, and, and, and this is what will end up happening. As you're doing that, as you're walking, you'll become more sensitive to the Spirit, and God will guide you into situations that you don't even, you're not even aware of and that you end up in situations where God is using you in ways that you never imagined. And so um, I would say the answer to all of those questions that you may have is probably yes. Yes. Go and do it, and then you will find yourself in new and other ways.
3: Amen. <laughs> I mean, uh, Puge, you're going to get married soon. Like, soon, like, there's going to be a time early on in the relationship when, when Pastor's going to the store and he will likely need to call his new bride all the time to hear from her what she wants because he's still learning Uh, what her wants and her desires are, right? But over time, like when I go to the supermarket, when I go shopping, I know my wife, and I don't have to pick up the phone in that moment to ask her what she wants because we have an intimate relationship. We spend time all the time together. I know what she wants, I know what she doesn't want. I know if I brought home anything with mayonnaise on it, I probably would sleep on the couch that night, right? (laughs) But there's benefits with the intimacy. Right. And so as we know Christ, we don't have to try to like sit around and wait for these download moments. Like we will have that intimacy with him and we get to carry that. We we get to know what his wants and his desires are for us all the time. So like amen to what Pastor's saying, like that's that comes from that relationship with Christ where where you're in the word, where you have that relationship with him. There will still be those times and those times will come more often where he will speak to you. I know that my pastor shamelessly tells this story of like him coming home, he was exhausted. I think he had like preached and then he was at the hospital all day and he gets into the elevator of his apartment building and he is exhausted. And so he gets in the elevator and then a woman gets in after him and he hears the Lord clearly say, pray for that woman. And he's like, you've got to be kidding me. I am exhausted. I can't, like I just, I'm not doing it. And so, like, they're riding up the elevator together, and there's silence. She's facing, you know, the elevator doors, and he's facing the elevator doors. And he said, I hear God telling me, pray for her. And I am not responding. I am actively, like, being uh, disobedient. And they're just going up the elevator, you know, 10th floor, 11th floor. And then before, like, her door gets open, the doors open up, it's her stop. She stops before she gets out of the elevator. She turns around. She goes, you're the pastor from apartment 12P, right? He goes, yes. She goes, would you mind praying for me? <laughs> God's and, like, I got this. Oh gosh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and in those, like, so, like, sometimes, man, like, those moments, you, you, you don't want to be on that receiving, and like, obviously, at that point, right? Like, yeah, of course, I'll pray for you. But God will give you those opportunities, and and He will give you the opportunity. Like, it's not rocket science. You'll know in those in those moments to just walk in faith.
0: I want to extend a very hearty and sincere thank you to our panelists. Can we give them a very warm thank you? Thank you.